0: decisions decisions you got to make decisions all the time now it's actually good that we're able to make decisions because we're we're living in a world that doesn't allow decisions to be made by people like you and me and other people that are worried about where things are going but we got to fight to do it and we actually do fight to do it and as i said if i didn't make it clear earlier i'm michael slate and again i'm always tempted you know at that point to say i'm michael slate and you're not but actually in a way we can all be me, <laughs> or I can just be all of you? <laughs> okay, no, that won't work. All right, I better stop before I get dangerous. <laughs> okay, anyway, we have a really we have a great show for you today, and it's one that we've actually put a lot of thought into. Okay, it's something that's really really stuff that's really really important. At the back end of the show, we're going to be talking about we're going to be talking with some of the uh, artists who created a great new play that I saw just last weekend. The play is Poor Claire. And I'll be talking with the director, Alana Dietze, and actors Michael Sturgis and Jordan Hall. And I'm telling you, this was a, this is really, don't walk away from this. It's a, it's a really, really, I, I, I really enjoyed the play. And I thought it was actually, it was very powerful, actually. In and in a sense, it was very, very interesting. And um, just to be, so we can keep things going, so we don't end up towards the end of the show, trying to squeeze in everything we should have said at the beginning of the show. Um, We're going to begin the the show with a conversation um, with climate scientist John Miller, talking about the Amazon Basin climate change. And he's a senior research scientist at the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder. And he is one of a group of scientists who published some shocking and really scary results showing that the Amazon Basin, that's right, the Amazon Basin, the world's largest rainforest, which people have called the lungs of the planet, is now emitting carbon dioxide rather than absorbing it. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Hi.
1: Nice to uh, meet you, and thanks for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, definitely. And thanks for doing what you're doing right from the beginning. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. Hey, I just wanted to, to do a, a small, mention a small thing, which is that I also have my, my current affiliation – I'm still affiliated with the University of Colorado, but my current affiliation is primarily and actually has always been with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. Mm-hmm. And that's, for example, part the Weather Service is part of NOAA, but I'm in the research branch of NOAA here in Boulder, Colorado. So it's a, it's a collaboration between a federal laboratory and, and the university.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and I'm going to remind you to say that again sometime in the middle of all this, okay? Okay, sure. All right, that'll sure. be great. So let's, just, let's jump into this because we don't have all the time I'd like to have, but we have enough time to get into this pretty deeply, I think. So recently, right. recently you were part of a paper in Nature which said that the Amazon basin or Amazonia was emitting CO2, carbon dioxide, the main greenhouse gas that's, that's uh, causing the planet to warm with catastrophic results. Now this totally shocked me, okay? And I'm not somebody who's been been ignorant of all this, but it's it really totally shocked me because for my whole life we've called the Amazon rainforest the lungs of the planet. Just how dramatic is the situation now? What is what's going on here?
1: Yeah. So the Amazon, the first thing the first thing to to recognize is that the Amazon is huge. The Amazon as a whole is, is more than just Brazil. It, it's several, it's about, I think, seven or eight countries. And it's about 8 million square kilometers. And honestly, I forget what that is in square miles. But for reference, maybe the most important thing to know is it's about the size of the continental U.S. So we're talking a huge, huge area. So the area that we focused on are, and really that made the, the biggest press from our um, study, was really the southeast part of the Amazon, which is about 20%. And 20% of, say, the, United, the continental United States is still a massive amount of area. And this is very important. Um, but it's important to recognize that there's a huge diversity of um, responses to climate, um, a huge diversity of where things burn, where things don't burn in the Amazon, um, so the worst of the news, and this is good news, is confined currently to just about a fifth of the Amazon and not the whole Amazon. And that's really good news because what it means is that with appropriate enforcement of policy, Brazil actually has very good policy and law on hand. You know, recently, some enforcement has been lagging, as far as I understand, but um You know, Brazil was able to reduce its deforestation dramatically, say, starting around 2009 to to substantially lower levels than it was, you know, for the previous 20 years before that. And I think with increased attention on Brazil and also other changes that are happening within Brazil, I think there are reasons to be optimistic. Um, You know, I think there are a lot of people in Brazil that are working to be very vigilant about and advocating for... More enforcement of of the the rules governing burning and land clearing in the Amazon, and so the eighty percent of the Amazon that is that does not show this rise of emissions is really what we need to focus on and preserving that.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that you you talk to um, in your piece is it's sort of look look, the article referred to Amazonia as a carbon sink. You know, I don't. Th- I don't think a lot of people know what that is. You know, <laughs> I didn't know sure, until I, I right. read about it. But it's, it's it's something when that's being played with, when that's being, you know, things are being turned around on it. We should. Desc- I'd like you to describe what the carbon oxygen oxygen cycle in plants and animals is. What's What's it mean? What's it, What is that?
1: Sure, sure. Let Let me just focus. Let me. Mm-hmm. So the first thing to remember is that I'll just I'm just gonna get rid of the oxygen part for the for now because if we if we cut down I'm not suggesting we do this <laughs> if if all the if all the forests were cut down in the entire world, we'd still have plenty of oxygen to breathe um and this is this is why scientists actually don't like very much the lungs of the planet analogy because it implies that it's somehow we're we're getting a lot of oxygen from the amazon and we, we actually have plenty of oxygen, not really an issue um but the carbon part and the global warming impacts from the carbon, the carbon dioxide, that really is an issue. But so let me get back to some basics sure, sure, here sure. Um, about how plants, uh, how plants and the carbon cycle interact with the atmosphere. So, anybody who's had a, pl- a house plant or you know plants in your garden, trees in, in your yard, etc., you'll see that they grow. And so, how do they grow? Well the way the material, what they're eating, so to speak, their food is actually carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so carbon dioxide is taken in by the leaves of plants, whether that's grass or trees or a house plant or whatever, vegetables, and they incorporate, they, through, the, through the magic of photosynthesis, they turn that carbon dioxide into carbon and that is often structural carbon, so making wood in a tree, for example. And then, and that's really, that, that's one part of the carbon sink system, and then of the carbon cycle, I should say. And then the other part of the carbon, another part of the carbon cycle for, for plants is that as plants die and decay, for example, and that can either be a whole plant or maybe just if you have a tree that has its leaves fall, those leaves will fall, they'll decompose, they'll become part of soil, and then the soil decomposes, and then small, either, you know, small microbes, worms, fungi, etc., convert that dead carbon back into CO2. So, if you consider a whole ecosystem now, not just a plant, the you have two processes going on. You have the plants, A living plant is absorbing carbon via photosynthesis and then it's shedding, you know, often in a typical forest in North America, it would be shedding some of its carbon every year. um, And then some of that carbon or a lot of that carbon is turned back into CO2. And so for a long time, what people thought was that these processes were more or less balanced, that if you consider a whole ecosystem now, not just a not just a plant but plants and soils that plants take up carbon and then the soil is releasing the carbon and so there's so there there's neither a sink nor a source. So what is a carbon sink? A carbon sink is when an ecosystem takes up more carbon, more carbon dioxide than it releases. So that means it's absorbing, it's like a sponge. It's absorbing carbon from the atmosphere. And so for a long time getting back to the Amazon now a lot of data that we had showed that the trees in the Amazon were growing and growing and growing and that they were absorbing carbon much faster and the ecosystems were absorbing carbon much faster than they were releasing carbon so they were helping us with our fossil fuel addiction in other words you know mainly in the north but really all over the world now we we burn fossil fuels and that's we burn fossil fuels when we drive cars, factories. Uh, electric, most electricity production is still from burning carbon from fossil fuels. That adds CO2 to the atmosphere. And then you have forests like the Amazon, the big boreal forests in Siberia and Canada, and even the temperate forests that you have, say, in big temperate forests that you have in the east and midwest of the U.S. Those are all absorbing carbon at a faster rate and they were releasing it. And collectively, those form carbon sinks. I should also quickly mention that the oceans have a role as well. We don't have as much control over the oceans, but the oceans also absorb a lot of carbon. And so then now the question is with the Amazon is that all of these sinks have been, as I said, helping us have been mitigating the, the fossil fuels. We've been getting a climate service or an ecosystem service from all the ecosystems in the world. Um, by absorbing carbon. And if we're starting to see this ecosystem service going away, what's going to start happening is we're going to start to see the full impact of our fossil fuel emissions. So to put some numbers on this, every year we emit through burning of fossil fuels, and when I mean we, I mean all, all human beings, that we emit from burning of fossil fuels, as I said again, the main categories are, are in the industry, like factories, transportation, and then power in the form of electricity. We emit almost 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide. And what's remarkable is that all the oceans and land ecosystems together absorb half of that. They're absorbing 20 billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But if we were seeing all 40 billion tons of that carbon dioxide go into the atmosphere, we would be in much worse shape climatically than what we are now. And so the big question for us as scientists is, how long does this discount, this climate discount from ecosystem services, how long will that remain? And so that's really why our study was so troubling, even though it was just one corner of the Amazon, as I said, the Amazon's pretty darn big, it represents a troubling trend that our are are sinks are the carbon sinks going to be able to continue to absorb carbon at the rate that they have been historically.
0: Mm-hmm. Really, I, I really want to pursue this real quick, but I want to remind people that you're listening to the Michael Slate Show, and we are talking now. With uh, John Miller, and John is like, <laughs> he's a major expert, okay, on how the how the world is being destroyed. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it with that, John, because it's really, you know, in a serious in a serious note, you know, it's basically what you're talking about are things that that people people don't really know, and we don't live in a society that actually makes it really widely known as how how these things function, and also how these things get destroyed, you know. And I wanted to, you know, because a lot of people, I think, will be asking a question of. Well, how did he know about all this? What method did you use to figure this out? Because it's important for people to know that this isn't just something you're guessing at. You actually went through a whole method that you used to figure this out, and I'd like people to think about that, You know, what, including what factors have caused this shift, all that. But let's talk about that for a while.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so, yeah, we, the, the approach, there are historical... I'll, I'll start with a little bit of what we didn't do. So the historical method of understanding carbon in the Amazon was, was fascinatingly simple. Um, it was started by two people in, in England who uh, recruited uh, uh, people all throughout different uh, South American countries that have Amazonian rainforest in them and mainly Brazil. And they actually got them to go to um, roughly, you know, one acre or smaller plots of land and measure pretty much every, the diameter, you take tape measures and measure the diameter of every single tree in that, in those plots of land. And they did this year, you know, every, they would come back to different plots roughly every five years or so. And so an immense amount of data was collected about tree growth. And that's how we knew Really conclusively, that the Amazon was absorbing carbon. Um, now, that started in the 80s, and our work is, takes a, a, a bird's eye view almost literally. What we've been doing is we've been flying in airplanes, and instead of measuring the trees directly from this bird's eye view, we actually measure the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere above the Amazon. And we compare this amount of carbon dioxide in the in the above the atmosphere of the Amazon to the amount of carbon dioxide above the Atlantic Ocean. And because the air in the tropics, people have probably heard might have heard of the trade winds, turns out the trade winds blow from east to west. So you can think of clean kind of background ocean air is blowing from the ocean crossing the border of Brazil and then moving into the Amazon and as the air moves across the Amazon we can see if the amount of carbon dioxide increases or decreases and as we measure the air using light aircraft that fly from about roughly just above the trees say a hundred uh, say roughly, 500 feet above the ground to about 15,000 feet above the ground. And so by looking at these changes in gas concentrations, we can then figure out if on much larger scales, not just by measuring individual trees, we can figure on much larger scales if the forests are absorbing carbon or releasing carbon. And we can also, because we do this not just at one spot in the Amazon, but we were doing this at four different spots in the Amazon, kind of northwest, northeast, southeast, and southwest quadrants, we could see which portion of the Amazon was absorbing and which portion of the Amazon was releasing. And from this analysis, we saw very clearly that the east and more generally the southeast was releasing carbon
0: now i i want to actually i want to get into this you know it's it's because it's such a you know it's a, it's such a tremendously important thing john in terms of what you're doing and what you're talking about you know so let's jump to this the article in nature actually outlined a couple of positive feedback loops first i think we need to you know we need, we need to explain what a positive feedback loop is and what did you discover about the dynamic that is driving an increase in carbon emissions
1: right so that's a great question so but so the first thing that we noticed, as I mentioned before, was that of all the regions that we looked at in these kind of four quadrants, it was the southeast that stood out by far as being this, the, the part of the Amazon that was no longer absorbing carbon, that it was no longer a sink, as we talked about before, and now it was a source. That, it was, that is, the ecosystems were releasing more carbon than they were absorbing. So why was this? So overall... The most intuitive way that we can explain this is simply by a correlation, um, which is that if you look at the east of the Amazon, the southeast of the Amazon, rather, especially, this is the part of the Amazon that is really the frontier of the Amazon. Because remember, from Brazil's perspective, most of the population of Brazil lives in the south of Brazil. Uh, in big cities like Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. And, but as you move north in Brazil, you get to the frontier and the Amazon edge. And this edge of the Amazon, the southeast edge, is where historically by far most of the deforestation has occurred. There have been a lot of fires there historically. There's been a lot of human encroachment and land use. And as a result of this, what has been happening is that the local climate, and this isn't very local, remember. I mean, this is like as if we're talking about the whole southeast of the U.S. The local climate here, the temperatures, especially in the dry season there, started getting much hotter. There started to be less precipitation because of the, the deforestation. And these processes built upon each other – And now getting to the point where they've really stressed the ecosystems, the remaining intact ecosystems, to the extent where they're not able to absorb carbon anymore and they're actually releasing carbon. In contrast, if we look at, say, the northwest part of the Amazon, we see there that there's, relatively speaking, a small carbon sink. And that... It's no it's no coincidence that in that part of the Amazon, you don't have you have very little human encroachment. The the forests are still relatively pristine. And and those are the forests really that we have to focus on protecting so they don't become like the southeast. Mm
0: -hmm. All right. Now, unfortunately, we are running up on our time. But I want to ask you this. And I think it's I think it's really important. This point about you know finally what's it going to take to save humanity and the planet? I'm really worried about this. Okay, so what's it going to take? I'm guessing that it's a lot more than what they're going to do in Glasgow, but I want to know your opinion on what's it going to take to actually yeah. turn stuff around.
1: So, yeah, I, it, it's a it's a it's a great question. Um, I think you know I I I have to say that I am a big fan of Greta Thunberg, and I think that in particular her Her, I saw a great quote in a New York Times article where she was quoted, and the interviewer had asked her, "You know, with all the leaders, world leaders, you've talked to, does have you ever met one who's gotten it?" And her simple, she had a one-word answer, which was no. You know, and and this is this is the real issue: is that very few leaders really understand the urgency of the problem we're faced with and i think that this needs to change and i think it's starting to change but it's still from the from a from my point of view as a scientist it's achingly slow because but i so what ultimately has to happen is that people have to realize that we have to do something and we have to do it fast. And, you know, I'm going to take off my, my official, I'm going to go off of my, I'm going to clock out of my official government job right now (laughs) and just speak, speak from the heart here and, and say that, you know, you know, we really just things people have, people have to have to be the biggest thing you can do is not, you know, recycle and, you know, riding a bike is great for many other reasons. Planting trees has some benefits, et cetera. But we need, you know, money is not the issue here. You know, the, the amount of money that we use to subsidize fossil fuels globally is, is just tremendous. It's something like $3 trillion a year if, if, you know, we're subsidizing fossil fuels still. And, you know, so people talk about, you know, unfairly propping up, Solar and wind and stuff like that. I mean, that's not the problem we have. We just need, you know, even if we just look at this from a purely capitalistic point of view, if we just purely let solar and wind compete on an equal basis and just did infrastructure stuff like made a better grid and things like that, I mean, these, we have very few technological obstacles actually. The biggest obstacles here are political and not even financial. Because if you look at the money that we spend on fossil fuels, the money we spend on defense, etc., we have plenty of money. It's about choices. So the biggest thing we can do is elect leaders and advocate for leaders that actually understand the situation properly and are willing to act. Um, and that—that's—that's that's the biggest problem. And it's not just a U.S. problem. I mean, this this exists in in many other countries as well. That people are, you know, leaders tend to be. They have these pragmatic, pragmatic, what they call pragmatic views, um, and anyway, I'll get off my soapbox for now. But I, I think that I think that it's uh, you know, especially for your audience here, I think they can appreciate the importance of of activism in, in terms of getting to where we need to get to.
0: Absolutely, and John, don't ever get off of your. Uh Standing up, standing up and saying all this stuff because we need more and more of it. People need to know the truth and what's going on and what's needed to be done. Right, so don't give up in any way, shape, or form, all right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we should
1: remain optimistic. You know, And, and, and this is not a binary one or zero pass-fail situation, right? Everything we can do will help. It's not like, oh, we're screwed. Mm-hmm. You know, if we can get to the point where the more we do, the better off we'll be in terms of reducing our co2 and methane emissions as well. So, you know, if we can't get 100% of the way there, if we can get 50% of the way there, that's still going to be better. You know, there there are going to be casualties for sure, and that's, you know, so we also have to focus focus attention on on uh not just what we call mitigation that is the elimination of the emissions, but we have to focus on adaptation as well, that is, you know, helping helping countries low-lying areas especially in the in the tropics you know big countries like bangladesh and and minuscule tiny countries like pacific islands you know we have to help them as well with with uh with monetary transfers to to make up for the fact that you know we've kind of we're not screwed but we we put ourselves in a bad situation so but we can we can do something about it i don't want to leave your audience with a with a very negative view i think there is, there is there's there's we can always do something to help out the situation.
0: All right, man. I want to thank you very much, John, and thank you for being here, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon, all right? Okay. Thank you very all right. much, Michael. All right. a
1: pleasure to be here. Take okay. care now. Bye now.
0: All right. That was John Miller that we were talking with, climate scientist at the University of Colorado Boulder. You're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we're going to take a quick musical break and be right back, so stay tuned.
1: Once more lay down.
0: pleased to welcome to the show, my next group of who, what would I call them? Hmm, 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 hmm. <laughs> I went to see a play. I went to see a play just a little while ago, and um, you know, we're now talking about the art. We're talking with the artists who uh, actually actually have been in that. We're in that play. And it was an extremely <laughs> to say it was an extremely moving you know piece, and it was and I, I'm very pleased to be welcoming people to it. We're, and we're going to hear from them um, as the creators of Poor Clare. And I want to say that I, again, as I said, that these the this, we I've seen scores of plays and few have drawn me in during the first two minutes, solely on the basis of great writing and the way uh, Poor Clare died. Okay, uh, the playwrights the playwright uh, Chiara I don't want to I don't want to ma- massacre the, this person's name, but I think it's Chiara Atik said I found I was having a lot of conversations with my friends in which we would dis- we would despair about everything from income inequality to homelessness to the refugee crisis and famine in Yemen. We would get ourselves all worked up over dinner, and then we'd go back to my apartment and turn on Netflix and resume my normal life. So she wrote a play about the 13th century Italian nun, Claire of Assisi. Wow. That was, you know, that was a, a really, a really, uh, just a, a remarkable show, a remarkable show and and uh let's talk to Alana first Alana can you can you talk with me? Hi there Hi, <laughs> good to hear you.
2: <laughs> you too. How are you?
0: I'm all right. <laughs> I'll be better when we start talking, so let's jump into it <laughs> <laughs> so what what are we you know we're going to hear about this I, and and I really do think that you know I think that the basic thing of the what the playwright said about I found I was having a lot of conversations with my friends in which we would despair. Mm-hmm. About everything from income inequality to homelessness to the re- refugee crisis and all of that, but we and we get ourselves all worked up over dinner and then go back to my apartment and turn on Netflix and resume my normal life. But you seem to you you've actually you are actually in a play that is actually just re- raging against that, that that kind of that kind of thinking. All right, so not not that yeah. you know. So let's talk about that. Let's let's talk about your your take on that.
2: Yeah, well, I'm actually the director. I, I'm not performing in the play.
0: Um, oh, so you're the director, okay
2: <laughs> Yes, I'm the director <laughs> okay. um, But yes, that's exactly what drew me to this piece I, I felt, you know, very much reflected in Kiara's writing um, Both just in the way that she writes dialogue which, which felt very reflective of the way that me and my friends talk um, And in the way she tackles this question of What do you do when there's so much suffering in the world So much pain and there's these giant problems. Um, you were just talking about climate change and, um, you know, the homelessness crisis and, uh, war in Afghanistan, there's so many things that are, um, bringing immense suffering in the world. And how do you face those problems and then also still live your life? Or if you can't live your life, what does that mean? You know, how do you save your soul in the face of all of that? Um, and continue to go on or what is the correct response? Um, and I think that's the question that the play really asks and grapples with.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that really got got to me, though, is that look, you know, you're talking about all these things that are happening, and uh, basically, it's you know, people. There was a lot of you know, there was se- people were seriously um, gaining things from it. There were people who were you know, there were places where you would laugh in it, but then when you step back at the end of it, it really was something that was that was. Uh, just very, very moving. Very moving, and and I want to actually, yeah. I I want to I want to actually also bring into into the s- scene uh, Michael Sturgis and Jordan Hall as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, Michael, what what is what's your thoughts on this?
3: Hi. Hi. Um, I am so glad that you made it to the play. I my thoughts on it are um, at least in playing St. Francis. It has been kind of a dissonance from who I am and Kiara has uh you know the reason she wrote this play is she is not a saint she is not Claire and she is choosing to as all we all are you know walk by people who are destitute and maybe do something about it but you know, not give up everything and not take the kind of actions that saints took. And I wonder if there are people doing that today. I'm, I think there are, but it's but it's interesting to see these characters as kind of an example of that and that they were saints for a reason.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, now I want to, I'm trying to get everybody in for a minute. So it's Jordan, is he, are you there? Yes. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Sounding good. <laughs> um, what I'd like to what I'd like to ask you is is you know I think it's it's very heavy. There's this kind of uh, the the opening scene introduces us to Claire's life in 13th century Italy, which I got to remind you reminded me of a lot of places where I found myself in current place America, feeling like I <laughs> people were getting a better deal many years ago. Anyway, but the point the point being but there's you know there's this whole situation that's going on here where there's a funny story or a bit of gossip that they tell about someone stripping his clothes off in the marketplace and what happens in that scene it's it's really it's really something that's very you know it's it's kind of it's jolting when you when you when you hear about that and you're talking about that i wanted to know if you had anything to to, you know say to on that and give people a sense of what we're talking about here
2: about
3: francis and
0: what you heard in that scene yeah 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 and because you know because you know look it's interesting because i grew up in in a catholic neighborhood a catholic school um all kinds of catholic school all the way through my college right and it was sort of it was one of those things where you really had to rebel at a certain point against a lot of this stuff and i was thinking about this thing about you know just watching the gate the way that you folks had actually put this play together and and what it brought to people i mean even the the, the 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 location the people um, performing in the play were things that actually really carried on you know a whole point that's going on here all right that A whole point that's going on here and I, and I think it'd be good if you could if you could actually t- give people a deeper understanding of what we're talking about happening here you know what was it ha- what was happening in that opening scene
2: yeah I mean um, I think what's so great about Kiara's work is that it's like you were saying it's not too similar to Um, modern day you know you can easily see people talking about some gossip in the salon and kind of the same language but with Claire and the opening scenes and hearing about Francis doing something so radical it, it it just kind of shows um the first seeds of what it is to to hear something that's radical and different and how she really responds to that with curiosity and eventually goes to meet Francis and then starts this whole journey. But I think what it shows is just like
3: an
0: openness to, you know, what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that point, though, which is really interesting, I think that this point about, you know, when we're talking about this in terms of the influence of Francis of Assisi, and I think that there's, uh, you know, also the statute that we were just talking, you know, talking about, the women in, in society, and in what she's actually has to look forward to is if she, uh, as a woman, stands in the path which has already been chosen for her. And that's one of the things that was really, that was very, very, very moving, okay? It was very moving in that sense. I mean, you you couldn't, You I don't think there was anybody who could watch that and just think, Take have to take a deep breath in terms of what was being unleashed in relation to that, you know, how people could understand what, what the hell is happening here. Mm, right. Uh, is there anyone who would like to talk about that a little? Yeah,
2: I mean, that's something that we talked about a lot in rehearsal is, Claire's choices are so limited. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she, she expects to be married off to a suitor, and the suitor isn't quite what she envisions as her perfect prince charming. Um, and once she's married, she'll live a life of privilege where she's waited on, um, where she has servants, and, you know, it would probably be a pretty good life. Uh, but what Claire grapples with throughout the course of the play is if that would really be a satisfying life for her. And the more that she, you know, becomes friends with Francis and the more that they sort of help each other dig into their ethics and morals, um, the less that that becomes a viable option for her.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of, and it's, uh, it's just, it's very heavy because, you know, I think actually, when I think about the the point of, I grew up in, in a Catholic neighborhood, a Catholic school, all the way through to the point when I opened my eyes and saw that mm, I didn't, I wasn't very, you know, excited about all that. In fact, I was <laughs> learning all these things that were going to put me back in the in the 12th century, you know. And um, it's a good thing that things started to be develop, develop big time in the 60s because I would have been lost without that. You know, and, <laughs> and you know, right now though, I'm thinking about, you know, right after we were, you were just talking, it's like what's and and maybe I don't know, you know. Alana, Jordan, who, you guys, will pick which one of you wants to talk. All right, what's the role of language and the ability to, of the play to touch people with its meaning and message? That was very a very important role. And why does it make a difference that it's in modern in a modern language and not just mm-hmm. any modern language? You know, some of the characters talk like vowels. Some type like yeah, young like young women from the San Fernando Valley. All of these <laughs> things. Let's let's talk about that a little.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Kiara wanted the play to be reflective of her experience. And so, like I said, I felt this too, when I first read it was, that's me on stage. That's me and my friends. That's the way we talk. Um, And so, and she does have a couple of moments in the play that I I don't want to give away, but there's a couple of moments that become sort of out of time in which the, you know, our beautiful period costumes are um, in contrast to Something else that's happening on stage. And I think that it, having the language be modern day also makes it um, accessible and makes it, you know, just very clear that what we're talking about is not something that only happened in 1211. It's happening now. Um, and also, it makes it very funny and uh, enjoyable for
3: modern audiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John, Michael, do you have anything to add? <laughs> I mean, you um, we're speaking about this place with kind of such a, a grave tone, and it, it does strike a question you know, the audience does leave with a question to ponder, definitely. Um, I wouldn't say that it is a depressing play. I think the the process of the play is really enjoyable, and I'm sure that mm-hmm. you know that's how you experienced it. And Jordan was saying earlier that it's almost like gentle manipulation, like the the question is really, you're eased into it, and suddenly you are facing this heavy moral dilemma, which, you know, it seems has been going on for hundreds of
0: years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll tell you what, I, see, I think that's really important. I just wanted to make that point. I, I, I'm not advocating you know some of the, some of the stuff that was going on earlier, but I think it's, there's actually this is a very important point in terms of you know what was developing in the play, and I thought that was something that people really need to you know think about and, and, and I'd like to talk about it a little bit more if you can, you know like for instance uh, I don't know I, I don't know Michael Jordan I think I guess Michael maybe hadn't sp- spoken a lot, but you know this, this, there's a lot in this play towards that end, towards the end when Claire decides to change her life and basically Found an order aligned with the uh, work of Francis Francis of Assisi. Francis that uh, has this moment of doubt, and uh, tell tell us what happens here and what you think about what you think that says.
3: Um, well, for me, that is the most. Uh, I'm very grateful for that moment because otherwise, the person who I am playing is incredibly saintly and uh you know seems to have no flaws or no no catch mm-hmm. i mean we, we, we the rehearsal process decided to make francis a sort of almost like hipster type in his in his um beliefs and his kind of preaching his beliefs like he was there was an element of oh i'm trying to you know make a point in a way that is cool but without even being mainstream you know because i am the only one who even does this kind of thing (laughs) and and then he is ultimately tried um and falls through in a way for a moment um and claire supersedes him a bit in in the uh in how hard and steadfast, her um, beliefs are. They need each other Mm -hmm. um, in order to, you know, validate what they're trying to do.
0: And I want people to know that this is a play for your head and the heart, and it's a very funny, and it's also, it's poor Claire. Oh, my God, (laughs) thank you. Sure, sure. Thank you so much, Michael. Okay, you're welcome, and thank you. Thank you Thank you. Thank you Thank you, folks, for doing this. All right, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. All right. Thank you, Michael. All right. Thank you. Bye now. All right. That was director Alana Dietze and actors Michael Sturgis and Jordan Hull from the play Poor Claire. We've got some time left, so I'm going to add something I heard recently on the RNL, the Revolution Nothing Less show on YouTube. On October 31st, the UN Climate Conference, known as COP26, began in Glasgow, Scotland. We'll have more to say about this in coming weeks. But right now, I'd like to share this piece on the new UN IPCC report on climate change, a more accurate and alarming picture of peril facing our planet.
4: The new UN report on climate change, a more accurate and alarming picture of the peril facing our planet. On August 9th, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change of the United Nations, or IPCC, released its eagerly awaited report on the global climate crisis. This report is the product of the cooperative work of hundreds of scientists around the world. The basic science of climate change and global warming has been well established for decades. This is the scientific understanding that human activity, namely the burning of fossil fuels like oil and natural gas, along with the clearing and thinning of forests, is causing the planet to warm. And this is having dire consequences. The new IPCC report represents a tremendous and important advance in this scientific understanding. It paints a clearer, more vivid picture of the devastating impact that climate change is already having. And it identifies some of the massive and even more devastating impacts of climate change that are now locked into the future for thousands of years to come. Let's talk about some of the report's key findings. Because of advances in the science of climate change, This report is able to draw a more direct link between the warming of the planet caused by the burning of fossil fuels and the widespread extreme weather events much of the planet is currently experiencing. These extreme events include this summer's deadly heat waves. July, 2021 was the hottest month ever recorded. From the Pacific Northwest here in the US to Italy and Greece in Southern Europe, People have experienced temperatures well above what is considered safe for humans and well beyond previously normal summer temperatures. The new IPCC report concludes that heat waves, which used to occur once every 50 years, will now occur once every 10 years, and that many of the heat waves currently experienced would have been extremely unlikely to occur without human-caused global warming. Because of climate change, tropical storms are becoming larger, stronger, wetter, and more dangerous. They are producing more rain, therefore increasing the risk of flooding. And combined with rising sea levels, which we will talk about more shortly, This flooding will gravely threaten the hundreds of millions of people worldwide who live in low-lying coastal areas. Hurricane Ida recently left a massive trail of damage in Louisiana and Mississippi, traveling up the eastern coast of the United States. This is an example of a tropical storm that is supercharged by climate change. A storm like Ida lasts longer because storms are slower moving due to climate change and they dump more water and are more intense. The new IPCC report has determined that Category 3 to Category 5 storms, the most intense storms, have increased in frequency over the last 40 years due to climate change. With more global warming, such storms will become more frequent. The IPCC report also concludes that wildfires, like those in California, Oregon, and Colorado in the US, and in Turkey, Spain, and Greece, are happening more frequently because of climate change. Wildfires like the recent Caldor Fire at Lake Tahoe and the Dixie Fire, the single largest fire in California's history, are happening more often because of a dangerous combination of factors. This is what the report calls the compound effects of higher temperatures, heat waves, and droughts driven by human cause to climate change. The new IPCC report also highlights long-term environmental changes that are now locked in to the future and will unfold over thousands and thousands of years, transforming the planet as we know it. Some of these already irreversible changes include rises in ocean temperature, higher acid content of ocean water, which harms many sea organisms, and reduction of oxygen in the oceans. These changes will lead to the dying off of many sea-dwelling species. These changes will also upset the fragile balance of the Earth's ecosystem, like coral reefs, and deplete crucial food sources for much of the planet. The IPCC report reinforces the understanding that warmer atmospheric temperatures and already rising ocean temperatures will lead to further sea level rise as glaciers and massive ice sheets in the Arctic and Antarctic melt. The flooding that rising sea levels will cause has the potential to make whole sections of the planet unlivable for populations of different island countries and for low-lying countries like Bangladesh. The report builds on advances in scientific methods and findings in the last decade, which have enabled scientists to draw firmer and more definite conclusions about crucial questions like how much the climate will warm, if business as usual continues for decades. For example, scientists better understand more of the history of the Earth's climate changing and how this relates to carbon dioxide concentration. Another example is advances in ocean science. The oceans absorb massive amounts of heat from the atmosphere. And scientists have learned more about how much the oceans can soak up and how warming oceans interact with the temperature. All of this, along with advances in the actual computer models, underlie further certitude in sounding the alarm on the grave danger we face from climate change. This deepened understanding feeds into the most important takeaway message of this new IPCC report. When it comes to dealing with the climate crisis, we are running out of time and moving in the wrong direction. Governments are not acting in ways that correspond to the urgency of this crisis. Now let's talk about what the report doesn't say. In order to stop warming the planet, we need an entire restructuring of the global economy from top to bottom. This means a rapid shift from fossil fuels to renewable energy sources, a transformation of the world agriculture system and a fundamental change in how goods are produced distributed, and consumed. The cold truth is that to seriously deal with climate change, you have to put the oil companies out of business, seize their assets, and leave most of the oil in the ground. To address this crisis requires global cooperation and collaboration. You need society-wide economic planning ...that puts social need and environmental imperatives in command. But none of this can happen under this system. This kind of full-scale transformation of society and economy... ...is utterly at odds with how the world capitalist imperialist system functions. This is a system organized around production for profit... A system in which the great imperial powers compete and contend with each other for global control and influence. A system that is leading to ever-widening social inequalities between the rich capitalist imperialist countries and the poor countries of the global south that are suffering the greatest consequences of global warming. However, there is hope on a scientific basis. Those who care about the planet must confront the reality that to deal with climate change, we need system change. And system change requires a real revolution to overthrow capitalism and replace it with a socialist system on the road to communism. This revolution is possible and not in some far-off distant future. This is one of those rare times when a real revolution is actually possible in this country, and this is something that must be seized on and built for now. Only a genuinely socialist system can meet the needs of humanity and unleash the creativity, knowledge, and determination of people who agonize over this crisis to go to work on it and create a society and world that could interact with nature in a sustainable way. As it says in some key principles of socialist sustainable development, the new socialist society will put the interests of the preservation of the ecosystems of the entire planet above its own national development. It will encourage and give scientific, technical, and organizational backing for bold international initiatives to prevent widespread ecosystem collapse of coral reefs, rainforests, critical savanna regions, etc. A revolution in the former United States will put an end to the pollution-intensive, cheap labor, global manufacturing grids of production. The structure of production and the resource base of a new socialist economy will no longer rely on labor and materials from other countries, like cheap parts from hellish factories in Mexico and inflows of oil from abroad. The new society will provide technical and financial assistance for helping to clean up environmental damage in other parts of the world caused by the energy and mining operations, agribusiness and forestry, and industrial activities, as well as the export and dumping of toxic waste of the former U.S. empire. The new socialist state will immediately dismantle all military bases and occupations, It will vastly downsize the military industry and begin to convert huge components for productive social use. Think about what it would mean if a revolution were to take place right here in the belly of the beast, in the country most responsible for the climate crisis. While nothing is guaranteed in regard to this crisis, a revolution would enable humanity to begin working on this problem right away and would open up the possibility of the large-scale transformations required to curb carbon emissions from fossil fuels and shift to renewable energy on the scale that's required. And the new revolutionary society would serve as a base area to spread revolution to other parts of the world. It would be a source of hope and daring to people all over the world and an inspiration for ecologically sustainable socialist development the world over. For more information, Check out the Constitution for a New Socialist Republic in North America, authored by Bob Avakian, the special resource page on the environmental emergency, and the special issue of Revolution Newspaper on the Environment at revcom.us.
0: That was from the RNL, Revolution Nothing Less show on YouTube. A new show is uploaded every week, and I'm sure they're going to have much more to say about the Climate Emergency, and COP26. You can find the show on the YouTube channel, The Revcoms. And that brings us to the end of yet another show. I want to thank my assistant producer, Henry Carson, my production assistant, Jeff Pryor, and each and every one of you for tuning in. If you want to share your thoughts and ideas about the show, or if you want to volunteer to be part of the show, write to me at mslate at com. Once again, that's mslate at com.
1: summer sky